Okay, so everyone, I think, has at least heard about the ways that bacteria can influence things like kombucha. But it turns out the bacteria aren't just limited to fruity, fizzy, lifting drinks. We're going to pick this topic back up today on this episode of Short Stories Bacteria. Hey everyone, um, welcome back to another episode of Short Stories Bacteria, uh, the podcast where we do incredible deep dives into the lifestyles of the minuscule and the infamous, the beautiful and diverse and varied and incredible bacteria. I, as always, am your host, Dr. K, and I'd like to personally welcome each and every one of you back onto the podcast. If this is your first time, welcome aboard. Whilst you're here, um, be sure to like, be sure to share, be sure to follow in order to help the show, especially since I derive all of my personal validation by the numbers of this specific podcast and nothing else. Um, If you have been with us before, well, then welcome back. It's good to have you back. Welcome back. Um, Now, what we've been talking about lately um, is the way that we interact with bacteria in the everyday Um, How do we interact with bacteria in the normal, everyday interactions that we have? Um, Are there ways that bacteria mediate the world in which we live? Um, Do we experience the world differently depending on the bacteria that are in and all around us, right? Now, this topic has been a little long in the making, um, but we've been investigating the impact of bacteria on a number of different really, really cool things. We talked about compost. We talked about the dog microbiome. We even talked about food. Um, In particular, last week, we were discussing kombucha, the old fizzy, fruity, delicious drink. And we also investigated the microbiome of kombucha and the complexities found therein. Now, at a couple points in that episode, if you'll recall, um, I brought up the fact that the microbiome influences a whole bunch of aspects about food, some of which um, are well-known, obviously like those things like kombucha or things like yogurt or things like cheese, instances where we're like, yeah, I'm pretty sure that bacteria has been acting in some capacity in in that food. But they also are involved in some processes that are less well-known that are still related to food. So what are some of these... um, What are some of these lesser-known processes, lesser-known ways that bacteria influence us when we eat our food? That's what we're going to be jumping into today. Now, to lead off this conversation, to kick this off, we need to have a very basic understanding, and that is this. Whenever we are eating food, we are inevitably eating bacteria along with the food, right? So just as the food is in the form of like a nutrient-dense biomolecule, like a lipid, Um, just as those food, that food, those biomolecules are giving sustenance to our bodies, they're also acting as a source of energy, nutrient dense biomolecules for a whole bushel of bacteria, right? And so as a result, whole bushels of bacteria will be hanging out on whole bushels of any given bit of food, right? Now, sometimes, and this is, should be perfectly obvious to us. Sometimes this can cause food to spoil, right? And we can actually kill, we intend to kill the bacteria on these bits of food by cooking it either in the oven or in the microwave. Um, But at the same time, bacteria, they grow really, really quickly, right? They're all over the place to begin with. So it's very unlikely that at that precise moment where we actually put fork to mouth, it's very unlikely that there is no bacteria involved. Now, if we understand this, then we come up with the somewhat unsettling fact that there are a lot of pieces of food 
that we consume on the regular that have whole batches of bacteria on them. Now, while this can be a little unsettling, right, this becomes a little bit less of an issue when we re-realize, and you should know this if you have been listening to the podcast, that we are already coated with bunches and bushels of bacteria, right? And so the bacteria on the food we eat doesn't really represent a change of state, but a change in the kind of the bacteria that we're surrounded by, right? We're just inoculating ourselves with a different batch of bacteria. So we're not like just for the first time being overwhelmed by bacteria. We're just hitting ourselves with a different microbiome, a miniature microbiome whenever we're eating food. Now, obviously this can be an issue if there's like a, a pathogenic bacteria present, right? But I think the main point, and I think that you're, you may be picking up on this now, is that the main point that I'm trying to get is that you don't have to be super worried right? Just because there's some bacteria on your food. There's bacteria all around you. There's bacteria in the food you're eating. It's totally fine. Now, Dr. K, you say crunching on a chocolate bar whilst learning that bacteria is hanging out on your food, including that their chocolate bar. This leads to a pretty fun question, actually. What is it that bacteria actually taste like? Do bacteria have a taste? Do they influence the taste of food at all? Now, that's a really, really good question, actually. And it turns out that Yes, bacteria definitely change the way that our food tastes. Let's give an example. In fact, let's use the chocolate bar upon which you are currently crunching. See, one of the main ways that bacteria change the flavor of food, the food that we eat, right? One of the main ways that bacteria change the flavor is through the process of fermentation. Now, we mentioned this last week in the case of kombucha. Fermentation is the process by which sugar is... Um, Different types of sugars are essentially converted into some kind of alcohol, right? The one that we want is ethanol, not to be confused with methanol, which is not the alcohol that you want to drink. I repeat, do not drink the methanol. Methanol is bad. Um, but anyway, so the, the, there's fermentations with sugars converted into this type of alcohol. Um, and then if you remember in the case of kombucha, then bacteria grabbed that alcohol, and then converted it into something else, into vinegar. And just like the SCOBY, or the consortium, depending on how you want to say it, that's found in kombucha, the naturally occurring microbiome in the cacao bean consists of both yeast and acetic acid bacteria, right? So that means that just as kombucha generates first alcohol and then acetic acid vinegar for the uninitiated, so too does the naturally occurring microbiome in the cocoa bean. I shall just call it the cocoa bean from now on. It's been pronounced multiple ways, and I'm very confused, so I'm just going to call it the cocoa bean. Okay, so that's very, very cool. But then why doesn't chocolate just taste like kombucha then, Dr. K? If it's all if it's all just being overwhelmed by yeast and acetic acid bacteria, why don't they taste the same? Well, it all has to do, at the end of the day, with the raw material that is in and around the cocoa bean, right? So as the pulp of the cocoa bean starts breaking down using this process of fermentation by the yeast— it also starts producing some other different compounds that you don't have in the kombucha substrate that we talked about, right? The tea sugar substrate, right? These compounds are then part of what gives chocolate its super rich, its dark, um, you could almost describe it as a savory flavor, right? Um, a similar type of thing happens when the yeast go away and they're replaced by the acetic acid bacteria that show up to eat all the ethanol that the yeast just produced. As the bacteria generate more acetic acid, right, relatively concentrated acetic acid, then that acid drenches the bean cells, and that bursts some of those bean cells, and that releases even more of these tasty compounds, right? So you're just increasing the concentration of these deep, dark 
savory compounds that are in the actual cacao bean, cocoa bean. Um, and as the acetic acid evaporates, which it's going to do, um, especially since um, since when you're processing these cocoa beans, you tend to dry them out, spread them out, and let them dry up. Um, as these beans dry up, the dehydration of these beans, and, and typically actually people will roast these as well, the loss of the acetic acid bacteria after that also contributes to the development of even more complex flavors, right? So you're getting rid of the acetic acid. That also helps develop this more kind of roasted flavor. So at the end of the day, the end result of all this is after you have this SCOBY fermenting and then getting rid of the alcohol, you have this really, really dense, um, nutty, roasted, bitter, brown, chocolate-smelling bean, right? Now, once you have this all taken care of, then typically what you'll do is you'll grab the cocoa beans and grind them up, and then you'll mix them with bits of sugar or you'll mix them with bits of dried milk, and that'll add to the sweetness or the smoothness of the mixture. Um, that's actually why the chocolate bars that you eat that have higher levels of cacao are much more bitter, actually. So more of the flavor actually tastes like the actual bean and less like the added sugar or milk. I myself am a sucker for dark chocolate. The best level that I can recommend is 75% cacao. Um, but I've also been known to go for a good 80%. But what I hope you've gleaned from this, what I hope you've gleaned from this is not only are the bacteria that are present in and around our food just being consumed by us, but in a lot of cases, they're contributing to the overall flavor of the food, right? Chocolate's a really, really um, distinct, kind of a unique case, right? We don't typically think about chocolate having bacteria or yeast like on our chocolate that are actually contributing to the flavor um, but if you didn't have that acetic acid bacteria for your chocolate instead of having the chocolate that you know and love right you'd have something that's just super super bitter it would actually be purple because bacteria changed the color of the bean in addition to changing the flavor of the bean and it would just be super largely alcoholic because of the the presence of just the yeast right so next time you're eating a chocolate bar be sure to thank bacteria for that um, but Dr. K, you say, fine, all right, whatever. Thank you to the bacteria for giving me this deliciously chocolatey goodness sitting pretty at 75% cacao. Is there anything else that we should be aware of when we're discussing the bacteria that apparently riddle our bodies and our food? Well, yes, um, there's actually even more to this story and even more ways that bacteria influence our food. But in order to understand that, in order to understand that, we need to jump a little bit more... Um, we need to jump a little bit more into the subject of flavor, right? See, we very easily go about saying things like, oh, wow, that tastes just like chicken, or oh, wow, that tastes just like a snozbury, without ever really thinking what that means. What we actually mean when we say something tastes like chicken, whenever we say that something tastes like a snozbury, all that we're saying is that there's some chemical in chicken or some chemical in snozberries that gives us a particular flavor sensation. So let's let's dive a little bit deeper in this. So a lot of the parts of flavor are specifically, all the parts of flavor, are specifically dictated by combinations of volatile, those are easily evaporated, and non-volatile, these are not easily evaporated, molecules. And those molecules are detected by our noses and our taste buds, respectively. So our noses detect the easily evaporated volatile compounds, and then our taste buds detect the not easily evaporated non-volatile compounds, right? And it's only an integration of these volatile and non-volatile compounds, right? It's an integration of these molecules that actually produces the full experience of eating food. 
right? So this is why actually so much of what we taste, quote unquote, is all about what we're actually smelling at the time because our overall taste is an integration of the smell and the actual taste of the these compounds, right? So that's very, very cool. What this means though is that if you can influence, if you can influence the levels of these volatile and non-volatile molecules, then you can essentially influence the flavor of a food. If you want to put it in another way, if you and I had a couple of pieces of the exact same apple, but if I could alter slightly the combinations of those volatile and non-volatile compounds in your mouth, then we could be eating the exact same thing, but be tasting totally different things, right? And when you think about it, we're actually tasting a number of different kinds of molecules when we're eating, which means there's like a million and one different ways that we can influence the ways that we're experiencing flavor, right? And all those ways have to do with just influencing the amounts of these different compounds, right? I could make a little bit more of compound A. I could turn down the volume a little bit on compound B. I could remove compound C entirely. Each of these combinations would give different flavor profiles when we actually eat something, right? And the amount of these combinations that exist within a single bit of food is enormous just because of the amount of the amount and the variety of these volatile and non-volatile compounds. Now, okay, Dr. K, you say time to bring it home. How on earth does this influence bacteria? Um, well, don't actually think about it that way. Just flip the perspective. Can bacteria influence this process? And the answer is absolutely a resounding Yes, if flavor is reliant on the amount of these different compounds that produce taste and smell, and if altering the concentration of each of these molecules influences the taste and smell, then any bacteria that synthesizes or degrades these compounds are essentially altering the flavor of that food. And if you and I have totally different microbiomes in our mouths, then the way that the bacteria interact with the food, the way in which they process and alter the flavor-building compounds in food, then that means that you and I, based on our microbiomes, are going to be having totally different experiences when we're eating the exact same food. Isn't that cool? Bacteria influence the flavor that we experience. This all culminates in a really, really cool paper, an oldie but a goodie, came came out all the way back in... um, in 2008. And this paper looked at the presence of these volatile, so easily evaporated sulfur compounds. They're found in a couple of different types of foods. Like you'll find them in onions, you'll find them in grapes, you'll find them in bell peppers. And these sulfur-based compounds, they can be like, they can be yummy, they can be delicious, but they aren't converted into a detectable form. So we can't really sense them until they're swallowed, right? Which is why you have this so-called um, retroaromatic effect, right? Where you have this aftertaste of something like an onion or the aftertaste of something like a bell pepper only after you've swallowed it, right? That's called the retroaromatic effect. That being said, what the researchers realized is that if you purify these sulfur compounds as they are, these volatile sulfur, sulfur compounds, and you don't modify them at all and you give them to somebody, they don't have a scent associated with them. They don't have any taste associated with them. So again, by themselves you can't really experience the taste or flavor of these molecules, right? They don't produce the flavor associated with onions, grapes, and bell peppers by themselves, right? That has to be coming from something else. And so the scientists were very, very confused by this. 
But after poking around, they found something that was actually really, really cool. So it turns out that in the mouths of these people, in the mouths of people, in the natural mouth microbiome, there was a tiny little bacteria that was really, really good at grabbing these sulfur compounds and converting them into something called a thiol, right? These thiols have a lot more of an odor, and that odor was contributing to that delicious flavor of these vegetables and fruits, right? So this little bacteria is just minding its own business in the human mouth. But it would do is it would grab these unflavored sulfur molecules tweak them just a little bit, and that little tweak that they do gives them a little bit of flavor. This actually explains why you don't get the flavor of the compound until you've already swallowed it, because the bacteria hasn't finished editing the molecule yet, right? This is why we have this retro-aromatic effect, right? Because the bacteria are helping out in the mouth and tweaking these tiny bits, these tiny sulfur compounds of these fruits and veggies, which in then turn, in turn, gives us a broader, um, a more, a more rounded out flavor profile that we know and love and associate with all of these different vegetables, right? The bacteria give us that flavor. So if you enjoy the taste of grapes, if you enjoy the taste of bell peppers, if you enjoy the taste of onions, look inward and uh, be sure to thank that bacteria that live in your mouth because if it weren't there you certainly would not be experiencing the same flavor and you wouldn't be able to savor these fruits and veggies anywhere near as much isn't that cool i think that is so so cool um that bacteria they're not only involved with with synthesizing the food that we consume like with the fermentation of chocolate and kombucha and kimchi and yogurt and all these different things not only are they involved with synthesizing the food that we consume? But they're also very intimately involved with producing the actual flavor that we perceive. And in this very cool example, by modifying and, and producing these flavor compounds that we experience. Okay. All right. Let's wrap this up, guys, and let's get out of here for the week. Number one, bacteria are all over us. They are in our body. They are around our body. And they are in our food and around our food. And that's good. Number two, bacteria are used to produce distinctive flavors found in foods, both in kombucha, like we talked about last week, but also in lesser known things like chocolate. Number three, the flavor that we experience is an integration of non-volatile, that'd be taste, and volatile aroma compounds that work together to give the flavor of a food. And finally, number four, Bacteria can influence the production and the breakdown of these compounds, essentially mediating the way that we experience food. Yet another super cool, yet I think often neglected manner in which bacteria are able to influence our everyday, day-to-day lives. And I think one for which, that we, uh, especially as we near Thanksgiving, that we should be particularly thankful. Um, after all, who isn't happy for chocolate? Who isn't happy for an onion? But... Anyway, I think that'll wrap up our everyday theme for now. We'll have to jump into another topic next week. But for now, let's wrap this up. Thank you so much, as always, to each and every one of you. Um, Thanks so much for tuning in and hanging out whenever you're listening to this episode. I hope you guys all have a terrific day, and I hope you'll join me again next week for another episode of Short Stories Back to Your Family.